This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. Uh, this is a special edition episode of the podcast, and I'm incredibly excited to do it. Uh, it's the first time I've gone out on the road since uh, the pandemic shut down. We're in uh, San Antonio, Texas, uh, and we are here with Marcus Basterville, the uh, co-founder of Weathered Souls Brewing um, and uh, head brewer. And also the creator of the Black is Beautiful project. Welcome to the podcast, Marcus. Oh, thank you for having me. And it's thank just, you for coming down. You know, it's uh, it's been a nerve wracking one for me because this, again, it's the first time that I've traveled. First time I left the state of Colorado, you know, since, since the pandemic. We've been uh, watching vaccinations happen and are uh, watching, you know, states get careful about masking. And we've been trying to stay socially distant and, and keep masked all day. Um, but I appreciate you just recorded a class with us on brewing stouts for our online education program. And the folks that are all, all access subscribers will gain access to that uh, um, once we get it edited and posted. So appreciate it. Um, but I think on that note, we should, uh, you know, talk about some stouts today. Obviously, it's uh, it's uh, something that's right in your wheelhouse and something that you're pretty excited about. And so I can't wait to talk about that. Yeah, definitely. Well, let's dive in. Let's dive in. It's the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling. G&D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, reliability, and dedication to their customers' craft. New this year, redundancy meets efficiency. G&D's micro-channel condensers are built with an all-aluminum construction, which eliminates galvanic corrosion. Using half the refrigerant of conventional condensers with fewer braced connections translates to a lower GWP and less opportunity for leaks. Call Jandy Chillers today to discuss your project or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. This episode is also brought to you by Crisp Scottish Pale Ale Malt. Crisp Scottish Pale Ale Malt is a workhorse of many a brewery and is at home in a variety of beer styles. Crisp sources the lowest nitrogen spring barley from farmers in Fife up to Moray during malting high cast moistures and balance of and a balance of optimal germination time and temperature results in an even well-modified malt with a rich color and balanced sweet malt flavor, which is ideally suited to ale brewing. Visit bsgcraftbrewing.com for more information on crisp Scottish pale ale malt or call 1-800-374-2739. So Marcus, let's talk about you first. Um, you know, as we normally kick off the podcast, we talk about your background and uh, how you got where you are today. So uh, walk me through that history as a home brewer and then uh, your entree into uh, professional brewing. Yeah. Um, so like many, uh, so obviously started out with the whole um, home brewing thing before the professional aspect. Uh, for me, I used to not be that great of a beer fan. I used to actually be more so into liquor. So especially uh, in my early 20s, 20, 21, 22, it was more so like Ciroc, Hennessy, that type of stuff. Um, my brother, uh, we have a, a relative that lived in Southern California and some of his actual like uh, friends introduced him to like Sierra Nevada Pale Ales and some of the basic stones and fire stones and stuff like that. 
Um, so eventually that trickled down to me from a brother that um, basically got me into drinking a little beer here and there, trying to expand out um, from the everyday stuff that we normally didn't drink. Uh, being from Sacramento, uh, Sacramento had a pretty good uh, beer scene as well. Uh, but even then, early on, back then, we had, what, a Pyramid Brewery there. Um, you had a couple other little options. Uh, we used to go to this uh, pizza spot who actually had um, their own house beers. But to find out later, they were contracted by Firestone. <laughs> so, you know, even then, we were drinking good beer back then. Um, so got into drinking beer first. And so it was one of those things where we started visiting breweries and, uh, getting to know different brewers and stuff like that. And my brother, uh, had got a Mr. Beer kit for Christmas from my sister. And so it was one of those things where the beer came out horrible, you know, couldn't drink it, <laughs> right. dumped the whole thing. Everybody knows about those Mr. Beer kits, right? So being said that, um, me and my brother are very competitive towards one another. So from cooking, um, beer, whatever the case may be, uh, you know, my brother's seven years my elder. So and I'm the middle child. So, you know, you kind of have that chip on your shoulder because you have so much competitiveness between your older and then the younger sibling, especially my sister. You know, she's in the process of getting her doctorate right now. So all of us Baskervilles are, are doing pretty well. So it was one of those things like, hey, uh, no, nah, I could brew a better beer than you. But our first couple of beers, we actually went ahead and did together. Uh, our, <laughs> we started off uh, pretty much our first beer was a um, Hop Slam clone. Okay. So we actually uh, did all grain, uh, you know, no extract or anything like that. We came up with our own hop bill, tried to write our own recipe, being a little too aggressive to start out, right? So beer came out horrible <laughs> something you really couldn't right. drink right then we tried again that beer was a little more palatable but even then wasn't that great um i ended up taking a promotion from my job at the time i was working for Citibank doing uh fraud prevention and i took a, a opportunity to come to san antonio to do training um i had never been out of sacramento as far as the living thing goes uh you know i wasn't tied down to anything at the time so i was like you know what new city something different and i'll make more why not? Right. Sure. Sure. So I moved out here. Um, didn't start home brewing right away. Uh, waited a little bit. But within the second week of being here, I actually got in a car accident and didn't have a car for a short time. So I took the extra money that I ended up getting from uh, the insurance company and I upgraded my home brewing equipment. Totally sensible move. <laughs> right. I mean, I was five minutes from my job. So it's yeah. not really like I had anywhere to go. A couple coworkers were taking me to the grocery store and stuff like that. Um, I didn't know anybody at the time, so it's not like I really had any place to be. So I was like, you know what? We're going to upgrade our equipment and I'm going to start trying to perfect this craft. So uh, fast forward, first couple of beers came out horrible. Um, I actually almost stopped brewing at one point, but my girlfriend, wife at the time, our wife now, girlfriend at the time, uh, she actually bought me my first kettle and she was like, you spent all that money on brewing. You better not give up. Yada, 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 yada. Keep at it. So I actually started listening to a lot of podcasts um, and reading a lot. So guess what magazine I used to read quite a bit? <laughs> what craft, was that? Craft Beer and oh, Brewing. Oh, man. Right? Wow. And then um, also <laughs> listening to a lot of the uh, Brewing Network. Uh, a sure, lot sure. of that. I right. basically went from episode one. 
yeah. and just sat at work and just started listening to every episode throughout the day right. um, of Bruce Strong and, uh, and a couple of the other ones. Um, so that really gave me a basis um, for what I needed to know at that point. So now it was just execution. So beer started to get a little bit better at that point, started to become palatable, stuff that you can drink, uh, even some stuff I started to share. In 2013, I had the pleasure of listening to Annie Johnson's podcast on the Brewing Network when she won 2013 Home Brewer of the Year. Sure, sure. So that was a big deal for me because you look and we're from Sacramento and this is a black woman. So now I have somebody that looks like me and from the same area as me that just reached the pinnacle of home brewing. Um, and so for that, that really motivated me, even to the point to where I even implemented some of the uh, brewing philosophies that she talked about. I mean, just like uh, not drinking during brewing. Um, so even at a homebrew level, I stopped drinking, wouldn't have a beer until the yeast was pitched, that type of thing. Sure. And then I actually made my first good beer, um, <laughs> which was a robust porter. And that robust porter is actually on tap now as our roundabout midnight, which was one of our core beers. So that was one of the first recipes, uh, that I perfected early on. Um, that's so great. We've, we've been at Annie's been writing for us, uh, yes. as of late. And so it's, it's, uh, it's fun to hear. Annie is one of my favorite people. Yeah. Yeah. She calls herself my aunt. Oh. Yeah. So uh, being said that, um, beer started coming out okay, a little more palatable, drinkable. And so I started bringing beer to local bars, restaurants, tap rooms, different things like that um, to start getting feedback. At that point, I knew that I cared about beer and I knew that I wanted to make beer, you know, the rest of my life. But at that point, I don't think I was at. I want to open a brewery level, right? Sure, this sure. is just, oh, I'm having fun home brewing. Like I'm enjoying the beer that I'm making. You know, some of this beer is as good as some of the stuff that I'm getting on tap elsewhere. So, Hey, like I've, I've satisfied one of my habits now. Like I could just, you know, brew beer. So started doing that until I started bringing beers to these different places and people were enjoying the product that I was bringing in. Um, a local brewery uh, let me ended up having a tap takeover and I had four to five beers on tap and all of those beers ended up tapping out that night. They ended up offering me an assistant brewer job after that. So I still worked full time as a fraud manager for Citibank, working about 50 to 60 hours a week. But then I took on a part quote unquote part time job. I say quote unquote <laughs> part time because right. they had me working about 36 to 38 hours a week starting out. Um, it was one of those experiences for next to nothing. I'm yeah, sure too. Oh, oh yeah. Next, especially what I was already making. So I think it was like, I mean, it would get to the point to where I would literally not even cash the checks for like months on end. And then they would have to remind me like, Hey, you didn't cash your check. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, it was that meaningless yeah, exactly. amount of money that, yeah. I'm like, Oh, okay. I guess that'll be a couple of extra groceries this week. Oof. Um, but even then, uh, I kind of grew tired of working there. Um, at that point, I really enjoyed creating my own beer. I really enjoyed being creative, period. Um, I mean, back then, I was already making, you know, orange cream sickles and uh, adjunct stouts. Uh, I'd even dived into barrel aging at that point. I kind of just dove head first in. And so at that point, I grew very unhappy. I worked there for a year, literally a year, and I couldn't take it anymore. I mean, they wouldn't let you experiment or, you know, do anything on your own or have any type of fun or anything like that. 
um me and the owner ended up getting in a uh, like a little tit for tat and so it was either i was gonna fight the owner in the parking lot and or i was gonna quit so i ended up quitting um upon quitting um mike uh, my current business partner, he was actually invested in the brewery that we was previously working for. And me and Mike had became friends over the course of that year, um, just going out, drinking different little beers at like local bars and, and stuff like that. And I used to let Mike try a lot of my home brews and, and that thing. And so about a week after I ended up quitting, uh, we were out having a drink and I looked at Mike and I was like, when are we going to open a brewery? And he looked at me looked at me in the eyes and said, I've been waiting for you to, to ask me that. And we started working on the business plan literally like two, three days later. That's incredible. Yeah. So, I mean, here we are four years later, uh, with the brewery. And so, I mean, you know, like a lot of individual, it's, it's crazy that I could say that story because a lot of individuals don't get into the beer scene that easily or have the opportunity to open a brewery. But it's know, not so that soon. easy, you know, no. like, and this is, it sounds easy. But putting yourself in a position where you make the connections and you work for next to nothing for a year or more after having put in the work in, it's not nothing. Like well, it's when putting you put your, it like that. Yeah. Right. You know, you know like you're, you know, but it's this, I hear the same story. Like you, when I talked to Matt Tarpey of the Vale, mm-hmm. it's a similar story. I went and swept floors and then they let me brew and then I was able to learn. Yeah. And then, you know, and so you did a lot of shit work for a while. And, you know, but you, you got to learn in the process and you didn't make anything. Yeah. And Mike Hunsacker, Grains of Wrath, it's the same story. Like, I started, work for this brewery, got in a fight with the owner, ultimately left, had to go do something. Like, you know, but it's mm-hmm. that learning process where you put yourself in the right situation, knowing what you're, that you had a different long-term goal. And you ended up getting there because you made an incidental connection that turned out to be a more, you know, important connection yeah. for you. And that's a common business, you know, uh, uh, result um and yeah it's not accidental yeah. it's just <laughs> it, there's there's it's a result of some intention even if it's not yeah, expressed in that true. kind of way yeah. yeah um we'll talk a little more i want to get into weathered souls and your approach to to brewing here but first a brewery might have 99 problems but your fruit supplier shouldn't be one old orchard is already known for their quality concentrates but they also pride themselves on consistent product and reliable supply. When brewers need assistance, Old Orchard is just an email, phone call, or even a text away. Based in Greater Grand Rapids, Michigan, better known as Beer City USA, Old Orchard is core to the brewing community. To join their fruit family, learn more at www.oldorchard.com brewer. Also, for years, BreweryDB has been the industry's only professionally curated source of brewery and beer information and responsible for mapping millions of visits to breweries all across the United States. In early 2021, BreweryDB will reveal a whole new platform with all new marketing features for breweries to attract craft lovers to their unique brewery experience. To take full advantage of the enhanced marketing power of BreweryDB and to increase your taproom traffic, visit marketmybrewery.com. That's marketmybrewery.com. It's easy and it's free. So you decide to launch Weathered Souls. Um it's not like there's no a lack of breweries in general. And, you know, it, even four years ago, there were some you know decently named breweries that people knew in San Antonio. Um, as you decided to cut, you know, carve out a space, you know, for yourself in the world of brewing down here in Texas and San Antonio, um, what was the kind of uh, was there a guiding directive? Was there a, a kind of core set of principles? What uh, yeah, um, would you organize around? 
So looking at what the beer scene was uh, before us opening, I want to say there was about eight breweries in the city. Uh, biggest name brewery wise probably would have been Freetail at the time. Um, being said that most of the beers within the city were pretty uh, traditional in the sense there wasn't a lot of beer that um, kind of expanded on some of the uh, newer styles, not a lot of adjunct beers or the fun beers, you know, the typical stuff that you see now. Nothing wrong with that, right? Um, but being said that, um, also being a huge IPA guy, a huge stout guy, I literally was miserable in San Antonio. Uh, there wasn't any traditional West Coast IPAs. Uh, I mean, we were the first brewery in San Antonio to do hazy IPAs um outside of la muerta which is a smoked stout uh there wasn't a lot of big body or barrel aged stouts or anything like that uh for me when it comes to that whole smoke thing and i mean everybody doesn't feel this way but anything that has any lingering smoke in it tastes like barbecue pit for me so <laughs> what's even wrong though, with that so, we're in texas <laughs> everybody loves barbecue down not here not in my beer so <laughs> being said that like i really wanted to love like la muerta like i mean the balance of the beer is fantastic the body of the beer the adjuncts they do i just can't get over the smoke flavor so for me yeah. personally i can't drink it um, so being said that, like we realized that there was uh, already a gap within the beer scene here in San Antonio. Um, so as a home brewer, I was already doing adjunct stouts, barrel aged stouts. You know, some of the because you're a little beers. bit of a beer geek and a little bit exactly. of a beer trader too. Also, exactly, right, right, right. You know, like I trade beer. Like I've been in the been drinking beer for what I'm 36 now, so 14 years. Like and being especially from Northern California, you know, I would say the the second beer mecca behind San Diego. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, I was pretty well versed in what I like, sure, what sure. I want to drink, what I think consumers, uh, customers will want to drink. Um, so basically I hit the ground running with those styles. We came out with the adjunct stouts. Uh, I think our, our grand opening, we had a barrel aged raspberry stout. We had a, te a barrel aged tequila stout. Um, we did um, a stout with cinnamon, marshmallows, vanilla, and something else starting out. Uh, but even then, we had two different hazy IPAs, which were the first hazies uh, within San Antonio. I mean, we were right there starting around the hazy scene when Pint House did. I couldn't tell you who actually brewed one first, but our beers came out around the same time so being said that you know we got onto the the haze craze kind of early and different things like that and that's what our customer base kind of gravitated towards because it was something brand new to the city something they sure, never had sure. before uh you know something that they would normally have to trade for to be able to get these type of beers and we came out the scene running with it so we already knew that there was pretty much a gap kind of head on as far as what the translation of beers being brewed and what consumers wanted at that point. Um, I mean, you look at some of the the like beer places that you go to, like Flying Saucer and stuff like that. And I remember when Firestone came to town and they had three or four different barrel aged beers and that place was packed. It was packed. And so you see the ability to be able to do that with those different type of styles. It kind of, you know, led us in that direction to be able to start doing some of that stuff. Um, but then even outside of that, I mean, you know, our highest selling beer is a West Coast IPA um, outside of that in restaurants as well as Dale, our uh, Mexican lager. Um, so, you know, we we still keep those traditional style beers that uh, the city um, originally is what what they're used to. 
um but we brought something brand new to the city uh we were the first ones to start doing collabs um you know bringing hype breweries out here quote unquote hype breweries right. and different things like that and those those breweries that people were trading you know multiple beers for and different things like that to be able to get and then bring these breweries here and have those collaborations uh that was kind of something that kind of set us ahead of uh some of our other peers around town Sure. No, I was just trying to uh, check my beer history, and I think the first, <laughs> I, the first time I had some Weather Souls was 2019. Okay, and it was uh, you know a beer beer nerd, yeah, beer yeah. trader friend of mine that's in one of those beer groups, and uh, uh-huh. and you know it was like uh, you know just invited me over. We had some beers and wanted nice. to share these things with me, and and so it was interesting to see you know your connection into that kind of tier of beer nerd world, which is its own kind of yeah, subset exactly. of the of the beer market. Um, and an interesting one because certainly on that kind of bleeding edge. Um, so you, you came into it with stouts. You enjoyed doing that kind of thing. Let's talk about some stout brewing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, you mentioned that you don't love smoked flavors in your stouts. And that's certainly, a, you know, a piece that's pretty core to a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of stouts. When you started thinking about the stouts that you wanted to brew, um, what becomes that kind of ingredient foundation, you know, for, for those stouts that you make, particularly in the Imperial, let's talk about the yeah. Imperial stout realm. So dealing with Imperial stouts, I knew there's a couple of things that I don't typically like in what I drink in a stout. So looking at like the, the higher ABV Imperial stouts, I don't like oh. over, over bitterness, um, which you're going to get in some styles, which is fine. But typically for what I want to consume, I'm not going to include that. Uh, another thing, uh, I think it's great. By the way, yeah. I, I we talked to a lot of you know you know brewers have different philosophies on these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. There are those brewers that want to make some paragon of style example that matches up to either some other brewery that has made it or a style guide or some other model for it. And I, but I also love brewers that know where that is and want to want to drink something mm-hmm. else. And can clearly define how what they what they think is possible and good, and define that as separate from what this other thing is. And I think that that's it's a great approach to want to make beer because you want these things to taste a certain way, and not just want to make it so that it tastes exactly like everyone else's yeah. out there. Oh, definitely, I think being a beer fan definitely helps, and being somebody that. I guess went through that whole phase of having to drink the rare stuff and, you know, trading for beer and, and different things like that. It, it kind of, uh, it, I won't say educate your palate, but it kind of helps you along the way, as far as what you know is popular, what's going to sell, you know, what people want to drink and, and that type of thing. Um, so for me, like other thing, like I said, no smoke. Uh, so typically we're going to limit the amount of black barley or roasted barley that's in our beer. Uh, something else that we're going to do is, uh, use the bittered black malt instead of black malt. We've used Carafa three a couple of times, but to me that basically is just the black dye. Like there's no real, right. yeah, like flavor profile to it. The black malt, do bitter black malt does, attribute some of those stout qualities i mean it does give you a tiny bit of roasted character uh to the beer you can get a little bit of that coffee aspect to it and so that's why i enjoy using that but something that we've been getting into lately is playing with the different chocolate malts so i mean you have the three variations right you got the pill chocolate you got chocolate and then dark chocolate um so something that i've been trying to do as of recently is play with those different malts in different quantities to produce different 
chocolate or you know flavor aspects within that stout range um so for us for instance we use about eight percent um about eight percent chocolate malt within you know one of our bigger beers and i've even started using anywhere from two like splitting it so five percent would be base chocolate malt and then like another two three percent would be dark chocolate malt and you'll get those different attributes and accents from those different uh malt bills depending on how you utilize them uh so that's kind of something that we've been what is from a sensory perspective how do you describe the the kind of flavor differences that come you know when you tilt it you know, towards the darker chocolate versus the pale chocolate. Yeah. So for me, like, uh, to kind of give a comparison, um, if you're using like the pale chocolate, like, uh, regular chocolate malts within your beer and you're using those, you know, within a, a decent amount of range, that's going to give you like your, like Hershey's chocolate vibe, right? You're like kind of that milk chocolate taste, uh, the lighter spectrum, uh, you blend them and start using some of that darker chocolate, you actually get some of those deep, dark cocoa notes. So I won't call it chocolate, more of that cocoa notes. Uh, something that reminds you more of like that hot chocolate vibe or even um, some dark chocolate that you might buy or something like that. Um, so I've been gravitating more towards the dark chocolate realm only because of the normalcy that we have with using sweeter ingredients. So it kind of balances out when you want to start going into adjuncts and stuff like that. Um, but you know, it, it more so kind of depends on what the beer or the base is going to be used for. Um, if we're just producing a non-adjunct beer, uh, then I'm definitely going to use some of the darker chocolate notes, the deeper chocolate notes, because this is going to be a standalone beer and you want to have those type of characteristics on their own. If I'm doing a beer where I want the majority of the beer to be, you know, the adjuncts and then the base stout being the, the secondary flavor as- aspect, then I'm going to limit some of those attributes because I want the, the adjuncts to shine. That's interesting because I I might have guessed exactly the opposite. You know <laughs> that if you're going sweet, you'd you know pump up some of those darker uh, you know malt notes in order to counterbalance. But that's interesting that you are when you go into that kind of sweeter adjunct style, you just go all in on that. Yeah, so we try to tend to a lighter stout so that stout doesn't uh, clash with those ingredients. Um, we've done the 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 deeper, darker attributes to beers um, with the sweeter ingredients. And to me, I mean, as a beer fan, I enjoy them uh, because you get that stout up front. And for me, I would rather taste beer uh, over adjuncts. But when it comes to the consumer base and you say that there's coconut, vanilla and chocolate in the beer, that's exactly what they want to taste and not really the beer within itself. Sure, sure. No, we'll, we'll, we will maintain our never-ending mission to convince beer consumers <laughs> that sh- they should appreciate those beer-flavored beer beers. Beer-flavored beers, right? Um, and and, I, and I, I mean, even in the barrel-aged imperial stout realm, those unadjuncted beer-flavored and spirits-flavored imperial stouts that uh, you know that kind of capture that—they're always my favorite beers. Obviously, when you see our top beers for for any given year, they always lean towards the non-adjuncted or the very simple, the simple, you know, adjuncted, you know, vanilla, Mm -hmm. just coconut, just, you know, keep it. So so let's talk about midtones in, uh, you know, because obviously with these big beers, especially with some of those darker, um, you know, more bitter notes, building those caramel midtones are are pretty important. Um, What do you use for those? Yeah. So typically uh, for our like midtones, caramel tones is we use a blend of caramel malts. Um, So typically I'll use, if I can find it, um, Crystal 150. 
Um, but typically what we're able to find locally because we use uh, locally sourced ingredients um, is usually crystal 120 and then I accident with crystal 60. So the crystal 120 is the heavier, like deep toffee characteristic and crystal 60 gives a nice little caramel tone. Um, so to help assinuate those, also what we do kind of is uh, almost as soon as we start uh, start transfer into kettle, um, we go ahead and kick on our jackets to kind of create some of that caramelization, bring out some of that melanoid in to come out, uh, some of those deep, dark characters that uh, that kind of attribute a little more um, when you get that early, early boil, early... Um, kind of you don't want to burn it obviously but right. you know getting it a little hotter in there than what you would normally do with your transfer uh we have had some noticeable differences as far as the like caramel toffee and those like mid-tones that you get to the beer what kind of percentages are do those make up in a general in a typical yeah mash for ours uh typically it's like around the two percent range like two three percent um we don't want to get too crazy with the crystals because we still want our beer to dry out Right, right. <laughs> or at least finish, you know, on the Wait, lower Wait, you want spectrum. it to dry out? So, you know, Nobody likes Dylan, dry stouts these days. Dealing with our stouts, you know, <laughs> we've done anything from 33 Play-Doh to I think our highest beer was 46 Play-Doh. Oh, man. 46, 47 Play-Doh. So even then, you know, you want your beers to round out. I mean, being that much uh, starting, gra- that high of a starting gravity, you don't want your beer to finish out that high of a finishing gravity because it's going to be way too much residual sweetness. Um, so typically for us, we try to limit the amount of specialty malts outside of our dark malts. I mean, you know, black malt, that's 10% is pretty high. Um, but for us, uh, again, we've been able to eliminate that overly bitter, overly roasted, overly smoky character with the bitter black malt we're using. So really using that much more so is to kind of contribute to the SRM. Uh, when I look at stouts, something that always deters me is looking at a brown stout or those stouts that are like dark chocolate brown, but they're not black. Right. I feel like if you're drinking a imperial stout your imperial stout should be black as night so for me that's something that we try to um try to get here uh by bumping up that black malt a little bit so you know i mean our first stout was called cavernous so being said that i mean that kind of you know gives (laughs) name to to what we were trying to achieve uh with that srm when you pop Pull open a bottle or you hold up a bottle of uh, the brewery Black Tuesday. Yeah. And you can actually, if you pour it in a glass, you can see through around the edges. It's like, oh, okay. That's that's not what I expected. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that. Um, not that it's a bad beer, but, uh, you know, that's right. Current expectations yep. and current trends for that or what they um, quickly on base malt. What do you, uh, where do you find yourself going? It's obviously not the most important piece since you've got no. so many strong uh, flavors in other areas. So for us, we just use typical two row uh, base malt. Nothing crazy, uh, super neutral. It's going to hit our, our starting gravity. Uh, helps the beer kind of finish clean where you're not getting any additional flavor profiles outside of that particular base malt. Um, I find that uh, Morris is a little too bready um, for our stouts. Uh, kind of gives like a little malt back tone sweetness that I don't really care for. 
Um, and then outside of that, we haven't really played too much. I think I tried Golden Promise once, uh, but kind of still settled on two row as, as the base malt that typically can achieve what we want, um, depending on what type of recipe we're trying to make. Sure, sure. Let's talk about um, body and uh, heft. Before we do that, ABS Commercial is excited to be a part of today's podcast. ABS is a full brewery outfitter offering brew houses, tanks, keg washers, and small parts. As a part of ABS Commercial's ongoing give back campaign, they'll be giving away an ABS Keg Viking keg washer in June. So make sure to periodically check the ABS Commercial Facebook page to find out when the contest opens and how you can enter to win a keg Viking. Um, and it, as we keep talking about these beers, I, I am getting thirstier and thirstier. Well, we're try maybe, one. maybe we should try one. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, so we've done a couple of little recent barrel age stuff as we just had our anniversary um, in November. Um, so we had some fun stuff. I did my first uh, blend, uh, which we could talk about barrel age blend and a couple of other things. But what we're going to open first is actually a member beer called uh, Things Happen. Um, so originally we had our first year membership, um, their last beer was supposed to be a sour and the sour didn't come out how I wanted to, it came out a little ropey and it didn't, um, end up, eh, it didn't end up being what I wanted, especially for the membership. So we dumped it. Um, so to make up for the fact that they didn't get their sour, we ended up giving them an extra beer, which was called things happen. And this was a barrel aged stout with vanilla beans and marshmallows. So this isn't one of our most viscous beers in the sense of mouthfeel, but still medium mouthfeel, um, nice vanilla notes on the nose, mouthfeel as well. Um, and then it kind of finishes with that little kind of marshmallow sweetness. So There's a little bit of vanilla in that. Yeah, just a little <laughs> bit. Uh, so for this beer, I want to say we used about two and a half pounds per barrel of Madagascar vanilla beans. Then we used about 25 pounds of this for a two barrel batch, about 25 pounds of marshmallows. So, you know, something a little. I want to talk to you about what marshmallows actually contribute, but let's, let's yeah, talk yeah. about body first, since we're, we're on that kind of uh, malt spectrum mm -hmm. right now. Um, in terms of, of kind of promoting heft and weight, you know, obviously lactose is a big tool that uh, a lot of brewers have in their uh, toolbox. You've already mentioned that, you really shoot for dry, you know, uh, relatively dry finishing stouts or finishing gravities, you know, despite, um, you know, so adding, keeping that kind of body into it without um, pushing a whole ton of sweetness. Um, what, what is your solution around that? Yeah. So typically what we do uh, to help contribute to body is a few things, um, obviously, is the higher mash temps. Um, so we're mashing at about one. 56 when it comes to our stouts uh, a lot of flaked oats depending on what base we're using we could use anywhere up to four percent worth of flaked oats within the the mash yeah um and then also those super long boils uh give nice contribution so um typically we do anywhere between a six to eight hour boil just on our base stouts if it's going into barrels sometimes it's longer anywhere up to 12 hours um, so the idea behind that obviously is the evaporation that happens as you're boiling, uh, which basically concentrates your wort more, right. uh, which ends up with more body. 
Um, but what we also do um, for but you're not pushing the uh, the 30 hour boils that uh, Moxa no, or Weldon I haven't or, done uh, that yet. I'm supposed to go to Moxa yet. in May, and I'm like back ah. to Sacramento. Or yeah, right. um, I I try to go home every couple of months. Um, obviously, COVID has kind of sure, prevented course, that, especially with my parents in their 70s. Uh, so I've tried to limit my like traveling to their house and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, me and Derek at Mox have a pretty good relationship, so we're supposed to be revisiting a beer soon to go ahead and dry hot or go ahead and barrel age and that different type of thing. Probably brew with the homies at Claim Steak too on there, and yeah, like I try to keep a, a pretty good uh, relationship with that home, you know, in case we ever want to open a second location or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um. Outside of, you know, the, the the boil and the temperature, something that we do add uh, to our boils are maltodextrin. Uh, maltodextrin is a non-fermentable sugar. Um, I like it a little bit more, a lot more than lactose when it doesn't upset my stomach. Uh, but You're two, lactose intolerant? Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. Two, you get... It's not a, that always trips me out because when I was talking to the, the folks from Angry Chair, you uh-huh. know, they were brewing with lactose back then. It was a couple of years ago now. And uh, even though their head brewer was lactose intolerant, uh-huh. you know, and it's yeah. like, you know, he gave people what they wanted. Yeah, we have a popular um, like sour uh, series called Creameries, and those all have lactose in them, like you know, like mimic that whole milkshake thing, uh, which have been really popular here. And we always get people asking for them, but I brew them rarely at this point just because I don't like lactose. Um, but we use maltodextrin. Maltodextrin uh, can provide some residual sweetness to your beer. Um, that's why we try to get the beer on the drier end of the spectrum as far as our finishing gravity, because we do add about 2% maltodextrin to the beer, uh, because that is going to add some residual sweetness to it and help with the body. Uh, you got to kind of counteract that so you don't end up with something overly sweet. Right. Uh, but no, we've done up to our longest boil was 24 hours, which was like a double mash that we ended up doing. And that beer was so thick that it, barely moved through our heat exchanger so i haven't done that again um <laughs> typically i can get right. that viscosity that those 30 hour brewers are doing within probably eight hours uh depending on uh the base that we're using sure sure um you know and then from there what's uh what's fermentation look like yeah, so our hops fer- are pretty standard. Yeah, like hops are pretty standard. Yeah. Uh, our fermentation, we blast the hell out of our wort with uh, O2 going into the tank. Uh, basically, as much as we can almost push into there. Um, so, you know, that's the the fact we need your yeast to go to work. Uh, you're sitting at a you know a gravity of eleven forty. Obviously, your yeast depending on what yeast you're going to use, might have some trouble. Uh, for us, we use California L yeast 001. Um, that's been pretty tried and true for us to where we can hit those ranges that we need to as far as the finishing gravity goes. Um, typically, we – well, not typically, but all the time, we double pitch. Um, I've even triple pitched uh, once, depending on what the gravity is. Um, so double pitching, you figure for a 20-barrel batch, we're probably using anywhere from four to five liters worth of yeast. Um, versus say, you know, I was doing a West coast IPA, then the two liters for a 20 barrel batch would be fine. 
Um, are you buying fresh pitches or yes. are you? So we, okay. yeah, dealing with our stouts uh, are always fresh pitches. I have done uh, like second pitches where I've pulled yeast off of like IPA or something like that and gone ahead and pitched and had wonderful fermentation. But now would I transfer yeast from another stout to a stout? Probably not because it's probably not going to finish out. Uh, at that point, your yeast has kind of been stressed out to that point. Um, so typically we're going ahead and dumping um and then you gotta do the matt brindleton plan and that's brew a <laughs> whole lot of 805 so that you've got a <laughs> all a, that extra a, yeast a, all right? that ale yeast donor right there <laughs> um you know he was he was joking about that on the podcast like you know it's the best yeast donor we don't have to <laughs> yeah it's kind of like the same thing with walt girl we usually get a, a decent amount of pitch after our, our blonde ale right which i guess that's 805 is blonde See? so that makes sense there you go there you go <laughs> right <laughs> so um, and then on top of that, going into the second day, we also oxygenate. So as soon as I come in in the morning, I'm hooking up the oxygen tank and running. even on day two, even on day two. I mean, at that point, you're not worried about no, your yeast hasn't hasn't produced enough for it to be any concern leading up into day two. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of popular stout producers that kind of do the same. That was actually something that I picked up uh from a popular florida brewery um so being said that you know that's something that we started doing here um and you can it's, it's a noticeable difference as far as the fermentation time um even before that a couple things kind of lagged uh finishing up um that kind of helps provide that additional um food kind of for the yeast to be able to go through that whole large fermentation process um, and then also what we do is through the course of that fermentation, go ahead and bump up the temperature. Uh, so we start fermentation around 66, 67. Um, but then by the end of fermentation, it's probably finishing at 72. Um, just to kind of help that yeast rally up towards the end and, and finish out the way that we needed to. So now you've got stouts. Let's talk a little bit about um, one of you know, the, the kind of your specialty approach, which is what we're drinking now, um, intensely flavored, uh, additive, I shouldn't call it additive. That doesn't sound right. Uh, <laughs> beautiful ingredient, um, sculpted, uh, and crafted flavors, yeah. you know, built onto that kind of, you know, base layer of stout. Uh, and you know, this one, obviously you mentioned vanilla and marshmallow. Um, you know, talk to me about how you go about adding those in order to, I mean, villain is incredible. Vanilla is an incredibly expensive ingredient. Jesus, it is. I mean, just insane. Like th thankfully come down a little bit in price, mm -hmm. you know, not, not at its all time highs now, but uh, <laughs> shout out to Derek. Cause he just gave me a new source for vanilla beans is going to save me a little bit of money for sure. Well, good. I, I'm not, I want you to, you know, blow up your source and, uh, um, and, you know, cause a run on that now. So <laughs> we'll, we'll leave that one a secret for the time being, yeah. um, you know, but when it comes to, to adding vanilla, what's that look like for you? Uh, so typically adding vanilla, um, if it's going to be the standalone ingredient, then we try to go heavy. If it's going to be accented with another ingredient, there's really no purpose to go heavy because then you're just wasting money. Um, so for a typical beer where we want the vanilla to be the main highlight, like this beer, we're using about two and a half pounds per barrel. Um, but typically, I mean, you know, a barrel, which is what our normal release is, is 55 gallons. So two barrels. I mean, you know, we're using five pounds of vanilla beans. Um, ooh, excuse me. Uh, for I us. Mean, that's only what, like, you know, $2,000 or so. <laughs> something like beans, that. Yeah. Right. 
Um, so everybody f- can do that. Yeah. So for us, we uh, treat our vanilla beans. Obviously, go through the whole like split the bean. Now, uh, something that I've gotten tired of of doing is sitting there, you know, splitting three, four beans. Um, so what I've been doing lately is using the Ninja, yeah. which I actually like a little bit more. Um, so we've been basically adding um, adding our vanilla beans to the Ninja, blending them up until, you know, they're super coarse, and then soaking them in a typical bourbon, usually. Uh, usually it's like a cheap bottle of McKenna or something like that. Uh, we let that sit for a couple of days, and then we go ahead and pitch the, the whole thing within the beer. Uh, you know, at that point, you've kind of created an extract, so you don't want to lose some of that flavor getting rid of that bourbon. Um, so we kind of throw the whole thing in um, to kind of attribute to some of those flavor uh, profiles. Now, if we're doing something like, say, for instance, this would have been vanilla and coconut or something like that, um, then the vanilla aspect would have went down considerably, probably like a quarter of a pound per barrel or so, um, where you can still get a decent amount of vanilla note out of it, but it's not anything that's overbearing or going to be costly for you. Talk to me about marshmallow. Why why add marshmallow? How on earth do you get marshmallow, the spongy material, to actually convey anything within the scope of a beer? So I have a secret for my marshmallow, and I'm going to share it just because we're on your podcast. Oh, my gosh. But I really enjoy it now. It's a pain to clean out of your uh, out of your kettle, but marshmallow powder. Marshmallow powder. Marshmallow powder. Now, um, is again, that related to the cream cheese powder no, that I no, keep hearing about? This is real. Using? This is real marshmallow powder. Like if you put it into liquid, it basically turns into one huge like marshmallow. Okay. And I got put onto that because our local grain distributor, uh, Brewery Direct, they got run through a um, restaurant supply. So we have access to all of the fun pastry ingredients and different like it's literally probably a 400 page catalog worth of additional ingredients that I can buy outside of like my typical brewing stuff. So one day I was searching, uh, trying to find some things that uh, you typically don't see. Like I still want to say that we're one of the first breweries to use chocolate ganache. I was like chocolate ganache like okay it's frosting but how many people do you know have actually used belgian chocolate ganache now over the last couple of years i've seen a few breweries do it but i want to say we're one of the first but then uh outside of that yeah i was looking for other alternatives to marshmallow because we've done the whole marshmallow thing we've done the whole fluff thing fluff thing uh you know marshmallows they don't ever really uh evaporate or anything like that they stay whole right Right. you know so i mean you know you can contribute it's not like some, you can cut them up or anything yeah, just you so you have greater like grind them so you have more <laughs> uh-uh. you know so more you get surface a little area. more like you get some flavor out of using like actual marshmallows but it's more like to me like that residual sweetness right um now dealing with uh marshmallow powder that actually gives you that base of marshmallow flavor within your beer so we add that in the boil uh typically for 15 barrel batch usually 50 pounds is enough um you know one bag uh but that's something that people might want to check out now it's a pain in the bitch to clean out uh because again you know once it hits liquid is basically expanding to actual marshmallow right uh but you do get some of it to boil out like i guess i could probably try mixing some in some water and then adding it mixing some in some water and then adding it or adding a little bit at a time uh but i always i don't always have the ability to you know have a whole bunch of time to kind of focus on those type of things um so typically we add half of the bag 
in, wait a few minutes, and then add the other half of the bag. And I also add it at the beginning of the last hour so we can have that whole hour to try to evaporate as much of it as possible. Um, I think I've even tried it at two hours. Um, so, I mean, it contributes huge marshmallow character, but it also provides some body to the beer, too, because yeah. in the sense, it's almost like maltodextrin. I mean, except marshmallow powder, um, from what I've seen, has been able to kind of ferment out. Um, but interesting just because of the simple sugar, yeah, that's because in of the it. simple sugars that are in it. So I've been seeing it's, it's been able to, to ferment out, um, adding it in the boil though, you know, now you're risking burn, you know, like blowing off some of the aromatic elements of it, especially if you're giving it a longer time to boil. Yeah. You're saying that some of that still hangs out. Yeah. Even- some of it still hangs out. Um, we actually just used a, uh, a base with the marshmallow powder, uh, to put in our Buffalo Trace, Trace Antique Barrels that we just received a couple of weeks ago. Um, so Buffalo Trace Antique Collection Barrels? Yeah. What's, what's this about? So, actually, shout out to Derek again. Oh, uh, he hooked, Yeah, he hooked me up with the connection to be able... So, what, this year we ended up with a Pappy 23-year barrel, a Sazerac 18 barrel, a Thomas H. Handy barrel... And then we ended up getting a 15-year uh, Woodford uh, Masters barrel. So, not too bad. Man, man. that's I'm that's... excited about that Pappy barrel. We probably won't even touch it for two years, but it's a lot I'm of pretty pressure. excited about like, it. You got to put, you know, whatever you put into it. Just based out. Nothing else. Yeah. Like, I would, I would be so mad to put an adjunct, like in um in that type of style so i said you know what we'll we'll deal with the base with the marshmallow uh powder over time that marshmallow powder will kind of our marshmallow character will kind of die but it'll leave like a nice little residual flavor uh for sure when that beer is actually ready i want somebody to make a uh a stout in a pappy van winkle barrel with a twist of lemon <laughs> the way that julian uh van winkle the third actually drinks his that would pappy be, yeah van that would be kind of dope i have heard that i read uh, i read the book pappy land from wright thompson over, no, okay. uh, over thanksgiving and uh and got a big kick out of that that our <laughs> our ideas about the purism of these things yeah. um are actually you know in the context of the family that makes them uh, treated completely differently which yep. is i think a great way for you know people for, for the geekier elements of <laughs> our beer community to uh you know uh check themselves yeah but uh um so marshmallow and vanilla let's talk what talk talk to me about some of the other uh you know fun ingredients that you enjoy uh so probably the one that we use the most and probably most famous for which we're gonna try a beer we'll probably be like you can talk me into it yeah probably be coconut um i think we do coconut really well uh dealing with our coconut we do a couple of different things uh when it comes to the whole like uh flavor profile from coconut like i've seen you know some breweries put five or six different coconuts in it like this has coconut yeah yeah you know uh but outside of that coconut water desiccated coconut coconut candy yeah you know all the things uh it's fun it's a good story yeah and and the beers that i've had with that have been good yeah Really enjoyable beers to drink. But sure. if you can achieve those flavors with spending less money, then I'm all for it. Uh, so for there's me, a bit of theat, uh, theater, you know, yeah, to yeah, it exactly. that uh, you know that certainly helps sell the beer. Yeah. I don't know that it all uh, helps make for the an absolutely crucial or necessary uh, flavor in the beer, but uh, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. So for us, uh, typically for coconut beers, we use two types of coconut: uh, desiccated coconut which for me uh, provides like that super round coconut, like almond joy type 
coconut flavor that you get in the like roundness of the beer. So like in Desk, that is really just dried coconut. Yeah, it's re- just dried uh, like coconut powder, basically. Yeah. Um, and then outside of that, we use toasted coconut. Uh, typically, again, because we go through the uh, the bakery, um, we can get our coconut already toasted to us, you know, that type of thing. I'll rerun it through the um, oven because we're fortunate enough to have a kitchen here. But I'll rerun it through the oven just to kind of, you know, make sure things are right are to ready not pick to up Aaron's yeah, exactly. culture. Uh, yeah. But outside of that, yeah, I mean, you know, we'll do uh, probably – that's about 65% toasted to 35% desiccated uh, to kind of get some of those round coconut flavors that we could attribute in the beer. I mean, you figure the toasted coconuts, what's going to give you your like sweet coconut and that right. nose. And so I try to use. It's so interesting that that heating process really does bring out the sweeter right. element. Like raw coconut doesn't taste as sweet. No, um, but even then, if you if you heat up desiccated and toast desiccated, it doesn't taste the same as if you were to use like those raw coconut flakes that you go ahead and toast there's a like a perceivable difference within them um so for us you know we've kind of created that balance of using those two different coconuts so what we're going to try now is our whale rider uh this is one of the more popular releases that we just had uh come out for our anniversary um that has been doing pretty well um in the secondary market so so I've been, pretty well in the secondary so I've been market. Told, that, yeah, you know, that's kinda, something that brewers don't want to talk about very often. Or uh, <laughs> they're a whole know. lie if they say that. So <laughs> you know, at the end of the Mark day, like keeping it real yeah, here. I don't obviously, you know, somebody's selling our beer, paying forty dollars for a beer and then selling it for 160 is one thing. But at the end of the day, I see that as free advertisement, right? So now somebody has created a beer that, you know, you sold for $30 in the tap room and somebody is going around and trading bourbon for it and whatever the case may be. I mean, that's just bringing enticement to your to your beer, to your brewery. Um, So I don't follow it. But again, you know, I come from the world of craft beer. Like I still have friends that trade and trade my beer even um so like uh one of my best friends owns a brewery in hawaii and he just did this side by side with bake a couple of weeks ago so you still have those like people that get kind of excited with that whole type of trend and they kind of keep me informed and i mean you know you want your beer to do well uh i mean you know obviously it's selling is one thing but to see it garner that extra quote unquote hype and stuff like that it makes brewers feel good don't let them lie to you any other way it's you know it's all part of a feedback loop, exactly you know like um you know and at the end of the day it's not just about hype um the market is pretty good at figuring out for itself yep what quality is exactly and you know and if something is hyped it can that hype can stand for a couple months yeah and you know and it's either either really resonates with people or it doesn't and if it doesn't you know then it falls flat and uh you know and so quality is quality people um you know it's almost like gamestop you know you can pump the market for a while yeah and you can keep it up there exactly but at some point some it's fundamentals gonna, yep. are going to come into play <laughs> and all of a sudden you go from 300 dollars a uh, share to, yeah. to 60 and then uh 
you know, I mean, you're still at 60, which is better than the 13 that it was at before all this run. But, mm-hmm. you know, you you got to, you know, you're not riding the same kind of highs. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, so, so this beer. So this beer um, is actually a blend of a few different barrels. So this uh, past year, we've kind of, now that we've uh, increased the quantity of barrels that we have, um, I've been getting a little bit into the whole like blending thing. Um, so this particular barrel or blend is a Willet Rye barrel, uh, I think a Heaven Hill barrel, and there's one more barrel involved that I cannot think of off the top of my head. Uh, but being said that, uh, it was then hit with a ton of um, coconut, uh, desiccated, toasted, and then this actually does have about two pounds of vanilla beans per barrel. Um, this particular beer, like I said, normally we wouldn't use so much vanilla if we wanted something to kind of stand out. But with this one, uh, I was really feeling myself and I wanted to be over the top. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to push as much coconut into this beer as I can. As you see, you got coconut floating in your glass and uh, nice little sheen of oil yeah, exactly. across the top of it. I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna push as much vanilla. Well, not too much vanilla, but enough vanilla where you're gonna be able to get that characteristic. And I want this beard, you know, to kind of shine. And this and, beer yeah. is incredibly sweet, and yeah. I like it. <laughs> you know, I I, I do. Yeah. Like you you drink it, and it's like this is this is very sweet. Yeah, but this is a dessert beer. This is probably the sweetest beer that we've done uh, for sure. Uh, but I mean, so on a theoretical level, I want to dislike it. And then at a base human, mm-hmm. like pure id level, like more, want more, yeah. must have more, you know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, and I think that's kind of an interesting interplay there that, uh, but it's not just sweet, you know, for sweet sake, there are definitely multiple layered undertones there and a, a caramel middle, maybe, you know, not quite as many deep bass mm-hmm. notes and, you know, kind of darker, I, you know, because I can withstand smoky and roasty notes yeah, yeah. and those kind of deeper coffee notes. I love that kind of thing as well. Um, you know, but it's still balanced yeah. in its own, uh, you know, unique kind of mm-hmm. way. Yeah. Now I'm going to have to pour myself a little bit more. Go ahead. Help yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this has actually been one of the more popular releases that we've had as of recently, along with the last beer we'll kind of try. You know, it's such a funny thing. I do talk to... Um, you know, I've talked to plenty of brewers in the past who have tried to map out or done the research on their own beers and looking at untapped scores, triangulating those against finishing gravities. Um, uh-huh. There's some strong correlations there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and as much as you might want it to be different, especially in this kind of style, that the sweeter something is, it tend, the higher it tends to score. <laughs> right. And so for as much as brewers <laughs> want to make, you know, beers for themselves that are dry and pristine and classic examples or, you know, right down the middle, you know, it's hard to, to mess with that, especially in this kind of market where yep. the audience for this is absolutely using untapped. They're absolutely paying attention to what their friends are drinking. Mm-hmm. There's absolutely a social component to that and a bit of that kind of peacocking element where 
They want that validation yeah. for their own aesthetic choices. They want their friends to see them doing this and think that they are cool and <laughs> in the know and connected and yeah. all of those things, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. We do that in, in you know, regular life all the time exactly. from the clothes we wear, you know, to the books that we read mm -hmm. and everything else. You know, it's, it's a way of conveying an image yeah. of yourself out there, you know, into the world. But I digress. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, other ingredients or is there any, anything in this? So let's talk to, we started talking about blending, mm -hmm. but we didn't really get too deep into it. Um, talk to me about some of the characteristics of different, um, bourbon barrels and how that causes a little, uh, di you know, different ex expression within your barrel aged beers. Yeah. So we've kind of been getting into the whole blending thing and experimenting with a lot of different, uh, not a lot of different spirits, but a lot of different variations of barrels. Um, something that we've been getting into uh, probably the last almost two years have been single barrels and barrel picks. I've become a huge bourbon fan over the last probably two and a half to three years, like to the point where I think I had a bottle of Jack Daniels in my house and now I have over 80 bottles. So, I mean, I've, I've become a huge bourbon fan. And so having... I feel you. Yeah, I'm a recovering bourbon fanatic. Uh, okay. I, I, you know, two a year and a half, two years ago, I had 36 open bottles of bourbon. Like, I don't drink bourbon fast yeah, enough. I, I think I probably have, out of the 80-something bottles, about 60-something of them are <sighs> open. But, you know, like I said, I'm still new to bourbon. So sure, these are all sure. bottles I've never had or anything like I, that. I, so I'm I getting completely feel you. That open. was the thing. Like, it was 2018. I was like, I yeah. should learn bourbon yeah. and understand that. And so I went deep into it and mm -hmm. opened a whole bunch of bottles and I needed to learn what I liked and how yeah. I was going to build my palate and what I appreciated about bourbon. And, and it was a wonderful learning experience, expensive, but, yep. uh, but a wonderful learning experience. My wife has started checking my bank account now. Like, <laughs> and now she knows like before I was able to like sneak bottles in, you know, now it's like, Oh, where'd this new bottle come from? Or who did you get this from? You know, that type of thing. But then even then, you know, being a beer producer and, and making decent beer, a lot of people take care of you when it comes to that stuff. So right, I've had a right. lot of random people bring me just random bottles and, and different things like that. Like, hey, I thought you would want to try this. So here's a bottle of this or something like that. Which one we're done, we'll try the first bottled and bond in Texas. Ooh, I know you're a, a bourbon fan. Yeah. So I have one of those in the office. But outside of that, we've been uh, try I've been really trying to focus on our barrel program, uh, trying to uh, garner and get unique barrels that nobody else is able to get. Let's so, talk about the flavors that those barrels yeah. provide. You know, that's what I'm, th I'm, I'm interested in is, is thinking about how you when you sense the beer mm -hmm. and how it comes out from some of these different barrels, what that range is, you know. When I drink a Four Roses, you know, I love that kind of spicy character, mm -hmm. you know, and that kind of fight that it has. And when I, you know, I drink a William LaRue Weller, you know, it's just that amazing polish and that bigness, that like wall of sound character, like a Grateful Dead show where, mm -hmm. they, but it's, where it's perfectly produced with, you know, every single speaker and the play is finely tuned. And so that even at that high volume, you hear this kind of detail and get to experience it. You know, when you think about the ways that some of these different barrels convey into beer, yeah. you know, how, what, what some of that range look like? And are there some specific barrels that you find, you know, or, or different producers even that create different expressions 
um, or, or is it producer based or, or is it age based and not producer based? You know, how, how do you think so about it that? It can kind of be a little bit of both, uh, a little bit of producer and a little bit of age. Uh, for us, now that I've gotten into blending, I've been finding myself enjoying rye barrels a lot more, uh, getting that contributed kind of that spiciness and, you know, that little back hint of rye to the beer. Um, I've been finding myself really enjoying lately. Um, so just like the beer that you're drinking now, I want to say it's about 20-ish percent rye within it, uh, dealing with Willet barrels. Those are mostly kind of the barrels that we've been getting. Uh, but outside of that, um, as you know, like different bourbons attribute different flavor characteristics. Uh, so for me, I like um, kind of like what I like drinking personally. Uh, a lot of Elijah Craig, uh, Buffalo Trace. Um, let's see. What's another major barrel? Uh, getting into, the, again, some of these store picks. Like I have a 13-year Willet bourbon back there, 12-year Willet bourbon. I want to say I have a 20-year Willet bourbon back there. So you figure, Damn. I don't know what flavors those give yet, but um, I think, you know, over that course of time, um, you're going to get those different contributes. You know, with Elijah Craig, Elijah Craig is heavy on the, the, the caramel and the toffee, and that does play within that beer characteristics. It does come out within the beer over time. Um, so then even then, we've started aging our beer a lot longer. I think when we start, started barrel aging, we are barrel aging from like eight to ten months. Um, now I'm at the point to where some beers I won't even look at for two years, uh, 18 months to two years, just because it has – I've noticed that it's uh, – you're garnering other gaining other uh notes without the without this barrel that if you didn't let it sit as long it wouldn't uh but then also the other thing that we typically do here that i notice that helps with uh some of our barrel programs like you'll have a few of our barrel aged beers and notice that none of them are hot uh, there's a couple of things that contribute to that that's definitely true yeah, yeah. Uh, one of them is going to be the fact of the age that these beers are aging within that barrel so a lot of that that heat is kind of dying down over time but then also something that i've noticed as far as aging my beers is the difference of aging them between um when i actually recirc the barrel and add water like hot water within the barrel let it soak and then dump versus just trying steam or adding beer directly straight into the barrel without recircuit or without uh rehydrating it first and i don't know the science behind it but i want to assume that that hot water has something to do with you know your staves opening up as it gets hot um and then you're adding that cold beer into that said barrel and now that barrel is kind of contracting um as i've been getting into bourbon i've been kind of learning a little bit more about bourbon barrels and and how kentucky or distilleries in kentucky and different things like that go ahead and utilize their barrels um so i've been trying to implement some of that into the brewery now i won't get into grave detail about that yet because <laughs> it's something new that i'm working on and i i really think that it might change the way that some people barrel age um but i'm not there yet and i want to actually do some real research and make sure that this is actually hitting on all cylinders of what i feel that it's going to uh before i do sure yeah. sure so if you ever watched the bourbon dis the bourbon documentary neat on netflix that gave me an idea for a barrel aging program so we're going to start testing that out I already got my control barrel and the barrel that i'm working with to actually see if it contributes and makes a difference but kind of see what happens i'm hoping for i have high hopes for it 
Uh, we're gonna we'll have to have you back on the podcast yeah. and talk about that uh, that down the road. Um, so there's one more beer that you wanted to to yeah. kind of discuss and so, put, uh, as a way to get into talking about technique. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so this last beer that we're gonna drink is our anniversary blend. Our anniversary blend uh, was a blend of three different barrels as well. Uh, this one was going to be a Willet four or twelve year bourbon, a Willet seven year rye, and then a four year Heaven Hill. Uh, so my thought process behind this was actually the twelve um, year Willet uh, was the more viscous beer that we had in those barrels. Um, it was a little on the on uh, more of the residual sweetness. That was actually one of our 24-hour boil stouts. Um, so dealing with those, uh, I think it was like 42, 43 Play-Doh. So it finished pretty high um, as far as the finishing gravity goes. Uh, so typically with those sweeter beers, we use them as like the the middle ground for the beer, right? Uh, kind of more for the body, but we use... Uh, I have another drier stout base that we put into barrels as well. Um, so we have three stout bases. I have Truth of Darkness, I have Cavernous, and then I just have our base stout. Uh, Cavernous is our more viscous, uh, overly large imperial stout. Truth of Darkness was the one that you tried the base earlier where it still has a decent body to it. Uh, still and pretty an interesting viscous. spiciness that yeah. just comes uh, out just from you yeah know. A, a, a nice little uh, mouthfeel and and flavor characteristic to it right and then the other one um, kind of is more on the like thinner spectrum uh, but typically we can get more of that like bourbon character uh, using the uh, thinner stouts which probably contribute to the less viscosity you're pulling more out of the wood. Um, so being said that it was a blend of, of those, it went probably about, we'll say about 50, 30, 20, uh, within the blend range. And so we were actually pretty happy about this one and ended up almost 15 and a half percent, uh, nice viscosity, uh, nice body does have a little residual sweetness on the back end, but not anything that's cloying or overbearing. Um, this, uh, was really something that I think uh, going forward we'll probably do about maybe once a year uh, doing this type of stout blend. And over the course of time, these barrels are going to get older. Uh, so for us, one barrel was 18 months, one barrel was 12 months, and one barrel was nine months, I think. Um, so when we do this next year, you know, that barrel will be two years and then the other one will be almost two years, or actually over two years. And then you know, the other one would be approaching that one and a half year range. And so we hope to continue to kind of branch out more into that over the course of the, the next couple of years or so, depending on, um, you know, how these different beers go and what we decide to add to them. Uh, but I also think that being, you know, the, the single barrel aspect of it does put a play into it, too, because now you're getting barrels that have contributed contributes to other flavor characteristics that you normally wouldn't get from that like say bourbon if you were to buy it on the shelf right so you know this 12 year willet pick was specifically selected for whatever the taster had thought outside of the the barrel picks sure, that he sure. already had um so i mean in the long run those are contributing to the beer in the long run as well there's such, um, yeah there's such an interesting trade-off here because you know when you swell barrels with high water uh -huh. then you are essentially washing off some of that bourbon character um and you know, that's what i thought because you're also dumping out the char when you dump out the barrel and 
and all of that type of stuff. And so that's what I normally thought too. But really, to me, it just kind of gets rid of some of that heat. I mean, the amount of time that we're leaving these beers and barrels anyways, you're going to get all of that flavor characteristic that you want over that course of that year and a half to two years, uh, regardless. Um, so and maybe think, it's that character of the wood that was imbued in the spirit that was in it, exactly. and not just the, you know, the actual spirit itself. But I think there's, you know, I wonder if there's also some element of that swelled barrel having a little bit more um, imperviousness to oxygen ingress. You I know? think so too. And, um, you know, potentially also aiding that aging process because it's uh, not bringing it as much kind of micro oxygenation. Mm-hmm. So this is this is the blend now. Yeah, that's the blend, and it's certainly not as sweet as the not last exactly, beer that yeah. we drank, but it still has that pleasing kind of yep. character to it. It's not a sweetness that's out of line with something like port or dessert wine, mm-hmm. which is you know I think where all of these beers can comfortably be and should and you know yeah, sure. and shouldn't feel um, bad about being in that area because uh, you know I think that that's a, a realistic and reasonable place you know for them and it's a realistic consumption mode yeah. I mean you know with a lot of these beers they're consumed the way that they're consumed is not by a single consumer drinking a snifter of it or drinking an entire 22 ounce bottle mm-hmm. of it I mean most of the consumption mode of this is smaller pours shared with a group of friends who are all beer fanatics you know amidst a context of a lot of other beers like like it or not that is the context in which people drink these right now you know um maybe not quite as much this past 20 or 12 months just because covid has screwed all of that up (laughs) um you know covid has been a pain in the bitch oh oh i hear yeah yeah um, you know, but having something that it jumps out, you know, that sweetness and that you know, the body that it ends up having with that and that kind of intensity is become makes something yeah. memorable in that kind of context. And, uh, you know, we can whinge about it all we want, but uh, <laughs> it's the it is that current reality for those that want to kind of play yeah. in this space of the market. Um, when you taste this, what do you taste? Let's see here. This is the first bottle I've had since the anniversary. So right off the bat, I'm going to get dried fruit. So I get a lot of that like dried cherry taste, uh, kind of almost even like a like a raspberry aspect to it. Um, and then for me, that's what that lingering kind of sweetness is. Um, and then it kind of melds back into that deep, dark chocolate. And then it rounds out with a little bit of oak tannin. And then you're going to get a little bit of that bourbon on the back end, but still going to have a little bit of that back sweetness. Uh, residual sweetness on the back end too maybe a little tobacco yeah know, just a little bit as it kind of finishes yeah. out um but the interesting thing is that it takes you on a journey you yeah. know and uh you know and you go along for the ride on that and it's interesting when i was crafting this beer i was actually drinking a at the time what was i drinking a maman 2020 that perennial had sent me and so in all honesty i was like i want to make my own fucking version of maman <laughs> It's not now, a bad goal whoa, to have. Whoa, whoa. Not a bad now, goal at all. Now, uh, one then of my beer just, friends, yeah. one of my beer friends, um, brought me. Uh, this is COVID, right? So he opened a 2018 um, Maman, and he went 
brought me a little poured some in one of his like silk cups brought it to me so i could do like an actual side by side now mind you this shit ain't nowhere compared to 2018 mom on i was like that's not even fair to bring 2018 mom on to this because that's like literally like one of the best non-adjunct barrel-aged beers that you're ever gonna have but I didn't specifically push my, yeah, 2018. Specifically 2018. But I didn't push my glass to the side either after drinking the 2020. So, sure, um, sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've like, still got a bottle of 20. I actually have a 2018, a 2019, and a 2020 oh, Milan. Back in, you know, I, I, I 2018. Probably, that was special. But, um, all right. Yeah. Well, now I got to go back and revisit it. Thanks. Yeah. But, you know, it was more so trying to create, yeah, you know, uh, a nice non adjunct barrel-aged stout that texas could be proud of that was the goal we're trying to create this beer uh and that's a noble goal um are there any other uh kind of distinct elements of, of your stout brewing program that we need to cover uh before we talk a little bit about black is beautiful and where it is right now uh no i would say that's probably the the majority of the kind of the philosophies that we use here and and what we're trying to do uh stout wise um but yeah, black cool. is beautiful. Well, you know, we I very deliberately wanted to talk to you about brewing first because yeah. I know everybody wants to talk to you about right. black is beautiful. <laughs> but we don't want to, you know, we don't want to not pay attention to that yeah. either. You know, that that's an important thing and an important cause to mm-hmm. you and has been a, a um, you know, a very significant, uh, you know, motivating thing uh, and an important cause for community and society mm-hmm. as a whole. Um, talk to me about black is beautiful now six, seven months in, uh, you know, to the program and what it looks like now and, you know, what it is meant to you to kind of also move along this Black is Beautiful journey. So originally when I came up with Black is Beautiful, I think I told Mike, I was like, maybe we might get 250 breweries involved, right? And at the time you're thinking that's a lot of breweries. I mean, 250 different individual breweries. I mean, you look at the industry that we're in and like, let's be real. I mean, it's less than 1% black ownership in the industry. But what I can say dealing with the industry is that, I mean, at the end of the day, everybody that's kind of guided me along my path of uh, becoming the brewer that I am have been Caucasian and they've been open arms with uh, providing me with whatever resources I need, uh, information, um, you know, whatever the case may be to get got me to this level. Um, you know, I can contribute to a few certain people that assisted me, like Jeffrey Stuffings, who you guys are going to go see later this week. Um, you know, that's a really good industry friend of mine. I mean, um, even going into when I originally was homebrewing, like, Hey, if you ever need any information for this, come by. Here's my number, you know, that type of thing. Uh, then Mike Moraz, I don't know if you know Mike Moraz at all at Moraz Brewing Company in El Dorado Hills, California. Uh, but he was a big avid home brewer, opened his own place. But, you know, he's garnered a whole bunch of, I mean, he's won GABF medals and a couple other things like that. But he was the first brewery to open his arms to me and my brother and, and cousin when we were home brewing, even before home brewing. Yeah. Um, I mean, he came out with a we used to have a like a beer group called uh, Brothers and Brothers and Beer. Um, so even before Black is Beautiful years ago, when we were in home brewing, you know, we've been about inclusion in beer. You know, we noticed a long time ago going in the tap rooms, we'd be the only ones going into the tap room or, you know, bartenders would act a certain way when we went in, act like we don't know anything about beer. And it's like, in reality, I probably know more about beer than you, but 
you know, I, I kind of digress. But being said that. If you're uh, black or a woman. Yeah, you, are, you don't know anything right, about beer. Right? right. You need all the instruction in the world. So Let me white mansplain that to you. <laughs> so being said that, um, you know, we've had that support from early on and kind of, you know, was focused on inclusion early on. And so just it, I, I remember the exact catalyst, the moment when I realized like I had to do something and that's how prolific I think that that moment meant to me. It like literally brought me to tears. So I'm in the car and I'm driving to Dallas to go brew with some friends at Turning Point. And I was listening to uh, Brianna Taylor's mom talk on The Breakfast Club. And she was basically talking about the course of actions to her finding out that her daughter was murdered. Um, being the father of two young daughters, being a black male that's been through, uh, you know, discrimination, that's been through racial profiling, that's been through police brutality, um, it hit home. Like that shit literally made me cry. And I don't really cry as a grown man. I think the last time I cried was when my daughter was born. Uh, the first one, not even the second one. (laughs) So, you know, being said that, like, um, it hit and so in the, on on the way back i was listening to uh just random radio stations and it was a lot of the like protests going on and stuff like that and it was one of those things like well what can i do to give back like what can i do to contribute to this cause because we're in mass covid right now and again you know up until black and beautiful i was a huge introvert so i wasn't going out to go participate in protests especially with a whole bunch of people i don't know and different things like that so over the course of that weekend i was actually having a conversation with jeff (laughs) and we were talking about uh trump uh race relations you know family different little things like that And um, at that point, like I knew that I was going to brew a beer and name it Black is Beautiful. Now, I did not know that I was going to turn it into a collaboration and it was going to become this huge initiative. Um, Originally, I was going to brew a standalone beer, name it Black is Beautiful, release it in the tap room and then donate some of those funds locally. Like it wasn't meant to be anything super huge. It was I think it was more so for my own like personal need to to want to contribute um sure that feeling of frustration yes exactly and needing to do something knowing exactly. that it's hard to have any kind of major impact but still exactly. you know, despite that just having to do something yep. and so jeff uh as we were texting i sent him the mock-up of the first label and jeff responded oh like that's a great idea and he goes i would understand if you this is exactly how the text went i would understand if you don't want to but you should turn this into a collaboration. And I go, you know what, Jeff? It's a wonderful fucking idea. So the next 24 hours, I basically um, try to formulate a way to come up with the mission statement and what it means for the Black is Beautiful as an initiative, right? Uh, being in a predominantly Caucasian industry, being that my customer base is predominantly a Caucasian male and mostly over the age of 50, you know, you don't want to kind of irritate your whole customer base um, based off of a release. Um, So I kind of tried to formulate a way to where it wasn't, you know, like an an attack on the industry or an attack on anybody, but was more so, Hey guys, like 
I know that the craft beer industry does have the ability to in be inclusive. So let's show everybody how inclusive we can be. And so again, like I, th I originally thought it was going to be like 250 breweries, but then we hit that 24 hours in. And then I was like, oh shit, like this is 24 yeah, hours. This is getting 24 bigger. Hours. This is getting bigger than wow. what I imagined. And then, well, you, you know, know, and then it also spec spoke to the kind of powerlessness that so many breweries yeah. felt where they wanted to, you know, you see what's happening. You want to have an effect. You don't know how to have an exactly. effect. And this is a fantastic way to be a part of a cause and try to do something. Yeah, exactly. And I think um, for the majority of people, like people always ask like, oh, well, you think people did it for the right reasons? Now I'm sure out of 1,200 breweries, there might've been a stray you know, brewery that for whatever reason, they decided to brew it. But uh, dealing with this initiative and, and what it's about and even just the amount of commerce that it's moved, like I want to believe that everybody participated within this initiative for the right reasons and the right causes. And, you know, the, you know, the and even if they didn't, you know, the core fundamental of it is that they donate the proceeds to, exactly. to a cause for racial justice and locally at that. And, and locally, you know, so the money that's being made, you know, raised by the, these beer sales is directly going to charities that are doing important work on the ground in local communities. Exactly. That's the difference between it and a, like a big awareness kind of nonprofit, mm -hmm. you know, that, uh, um, you know, that, that the real fundamental goal of that is also, it's not just making a political statement. It is also raising funds and building donations for groups that are actually and actively, you know, lobbying for change. Yeah. Well, Black is Beautiful isn't really a political statement either. It's more of a, a humanity thing, I think, at this point. I mean, we're in 2021. Right. It shouldn't be controversial. Yeah, I shouldn't right? have to. Yeah. Like, I shouldn't yeah. have to come up with an initiative called Black is Beautiful at this point. Um, but even being said that, you know, the the beer was the kind of the initial message, but that was one of the goals was getting these breweries involved with their local communities. Um, you figure there's a lot of breweries that don't even know what's in their own backyard because they have their set customer base and that's fine for them. And, you know, there's the whole always been the whole premise that beer isn't marketed to black individuals or other minorities or people of color. And so this is a way for you to get into your community. This is a way for you to give back. This is a way for you to communicate with those individuals that you normally wouldn't communicate and maybe you might even learn something um and even being said that like you know there's there was those like uh instances where you know you had consumers that had certain breweries that they didn't want to participate but what i say to that is is that if somebody really wanted to take the effort to participate in black is beautiful then go ahead and let them right Everybody makes mistakes at some point within their lives, business, or whatever the case may be. Now, I might not even still drink their beer, but who is it for me to go ahead and tell somebody that they can't participate in something that's actually giving back to the community, giving back, you know, to to their com to their community, to the people, or whatever the case may be. Um, and then even then, if you go ahead and sideline anybody who wants to be an ally, how many allies are you going to have le left at the end of the day? Um, and so that's kind of why I left it open for, you know, any of the breweries I wanted to participate. I mean, you figure you had AB InBev participate in multiple avenues. I mean, you had founders participate. Now, they sent me two cases of beer and I didn't try not one of them, but I'm not going to shit on founders for participating in Black is Beautiful.
Um, you hope that it might also help be something that helps them reflect on some um, of their past transgressions. Yes. Um, and so that was more so what that was about. And I mean, you know, they had their literal marketing director and vice president reach out to us about their participation. So I felt like they were actually trying to make an effort in wanting to give back. Now, you know, if it's true, only they know. If, if it but becomes just a effort to rehabilitate. and Exactly. Uh, the know, name and, that they and, lost, that's on them. But hey, at least I did my part in two regards to that. Sure. Sure. Uh, now, there's got to be a downside for it in, in addition to the upside. You know, I know from our perspective having published black is beautiful recipe on our, on our website, mm-hmm. like we've gotten hate mail about it, <laughs> you know, and we're just a magazine with a homebrew recipe for it. I imagine that, you know, luckily the- those emails don't go to me. They go to <laughs> Kim. So my sales manager behind, Oh, she left. Uh, that was behind us. Yeah. yeah. Um, most of those emails go to her. Oh, good. So good, luckily, good. yeah, luckily I, and honestly, she doesn't even send me most of them. Like, she might say, Oh, you know, we got a bad email, but, on the other end of the spectrum, like it's been way more positivity than a negative. Right, I think I right. could probably count on my like hands and toes how many like actual negative emails or messages that we've received. Like there's been some hateful ones for sure. Um, I mean, are you even look at uh, we just started a national campaign uh, with Walmart. And so Black is Beautiful is in 300 locations nationwide uh, with uh, eight other breweries in collaboration. Now, off the top of my head, breweries don't get mad because I'm don't I don't think I'm going to be able to because we've been drinking some beers already tonight. But uh, Catawba, uh, Monday Night Brewing, uh, Revision, Three Sons, Prohibition. Core. Core. Yes. And I'm missing two. But, oh, us, now missing one. <laughs> but, you know, being said that, um, you know, they were, all these breweries were wonderful enough to go ahead, collaborate with us with releasing this beer in a national market. Um, so even seeing large um, retail brands like Walmart wanting to participate in Black is Beautiful for Black History Month and and wanting the beer. I mean, we've had Target reach out to us. We've had, you know, shit, uh Total Wine, um, Trader Joe's, all in the support of Black is Beautiful. So to even see those like large retailers and, and different things like that want to support, at least we know that the beer is going in the right direction and people really, I think, do understand what the cause is about. I mean, you're always going to have those negative aspects of people that want to hate on what they don't understand. And just like, you know, they oh, keep my politics out of beer. Well, this isn't a political issue. I mean, you know, black people having rights, black people having to say, black people wanting to be equal within the community, I don't think that has anything to do with politics whatsoever. I mean, that's just basic human rights of wanting to to be equal to to your peers. Um, So being said that, I mean, like, I know there was one of the stores that we tried to take up to in the outskirts of Dallas and the manager was, I'm not taking that beer. (laughs) Which is, I mean, it's the outskirts of Dallas, right? So it's understandable, but, you know, at, at this point, with everybody that's involved themselves, even the fact that it's transcended outside of just beer and into other service industries, I mean, you know, the negativity, it is what it is at this point. It's taken a huge amount of your mental and, uh, you know, uh, time kind of capacity over the past seven months. If you had the choice 
would you do it again? <laughs> yes, I think I would, uh, but with more help. <laughs> I think um, I would probably include um, maybe even my business partner or Kim a little bit more just in some of the overall conversations. Like I said, I used to be a huge introvert, so it was a huge difference going from only talking to people when you wanted to, to, you know, oh, you have an interview at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 30, 3.30. Oh, and then you have one at 7 p.m. too. It was like literally certain days, it would be anywhere up to probably 10 conversations that I would have into relations of Black is Beautiful. I mean, even now, um, it's still probably anywhere from probably four to five interviews a week or podcasts or whatever the case may be. I mean, this morning we just did the local news uh, before we filmed our episode. Um, before you guys got here, I had a, a news article or um, a Zoom a Zoom like thing with uh, News 4 and San Antonio Living where they talked about Black is Beautiful and just some of the recent accolades that we've had uh, recently um, behind our beer and stuff like that. And so, you know, it 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 is what it is at this point you know i i would definitely do it again especially seeing the impact that was made um the commerce that's been moved uh the help that has been provided to so many different organizations and communities um i've i think the most fantastic part about this whole initiative has been all of the like letters and notes and and stuff like that that people have sent or just some of the random emails that i've gotten as far as just people thank you for you know doing this initiative and you know this said brewery donated this much money to our cause and it you know helped us do this or that um just like we have a collaboration going with humanize our hoodie right now they were one of the first like brands that reached out to us um as far as the support they got from a, a brewery in Minneapolis and so just to see some of that stuff or the California Innocence Project um, they had a huge amount of support and they ended up awarding me with their Exonerator Award uh, at the end of the year so just to kind of see um, some of the changes that have actually been made by this initiative um, I couldn't help but kind of continue this I mean even then I would have thought that I mean, what, we're seven, eight months into the initiative that it, it kind of dwindled down by now, but we're still full steam ahead. And, you know, I'm still as motivated as ever to kind of continue to push this initiative and see where it goes and and how large it could become. I mean, you know, again, going in the the beer is only the message um, as far as it goes. Almost any service industry can get involved within Black is Beautiful. And so to be able to see that and see some of these um different entities transition into coming up with their own black is beautiful stuff i mean we have bourbon coming out four years from now that's going to be associated with the black is beautiful recipe and it was interesting because i was going to a uh, distillery out here in texas to go do a store pick actual well, a barrel pick and when i showed up they were actually brewing black is beautiful to start distilling and they didn't know i was coming and it was just the fact that wow like distillery is over here making the black is beautiful recipe and they're going to age this for four years in barrels and release a bourbon so i mean just to see things like that it's it's amazing it's become something that's you know while it was your brainchild it's become something bigger than you exactly and it's an important piece of the conversation that allows people who might not otherwise engage with the subject um, to do it in a way yeah. that is compelling because it's also something that they respect. Yep. 
Well, I appreciate you spending this much time talking <laughs> to me today. Uh, that's uh, no you're, you're an incredibly busy person, Marcus Baskerville. <laughs> uh, but no, I, I deeply appreciate it. No, and, no uh, problem. We'll be back at it again tomorrow. <laughs> fantastic. Fantastic. Um, GND Chillers is the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling. Crisp Scottish Pale Ale Malt is the workhorse of many of brewery. Get great quality and reliable supply from Old Orchard. Take full advantage of the enhanced marketing power of Brewery DB. And check the ABS commercial Facebook page to find out how to enter to win a Keg Viking. Of course, if you'd like to support this very podcast, go to beerandbrewing.com. Click on the subscribe button, and if you're a pro brewer, consider the new All Access Pro subscriptions that combine the magazine, exclusive online content, and more. If you are a home brewer, certainly sign up for the Craft Beer and Brewing All Access subscriptions and follow the class that Marcus right here uh, has just recorded for us here in San Antonio and will be up on our platform in a couple of months. Um, Marcus, if people want to learn more about Weathered Souls, about Black is Beautiful, where do they find both of those entities? Yeah, uh, we are on all social media platforms, Weathered Souls Brewing Co. You can also go to our website at weatheredsouls.beer and obviously check out the Black is Beautiful initiative. Uh, there's an awesome little documentary video you could view kind of about the processes to view the recipe. Uh, consumers can sign up. Um, home brewers, you guys can get access to the recipe as well at Black is Beautiful beautiful.beer. Well, again, thanks. It's been my privilege to have this conversation and talk to you about this kind of stuff. Like I said, I, my home brewing, I grew up on this, so this is like a bucket list thing for me for sure. The feeling is absolutely mutual. <laughs> Cheers, Marcus. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.